Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. Today's movie is The Weatherman from 2005, directed by Gore Verbinski, who you may know from Pirates of the Caribbean. Caribbean? Caribbean. Eh, whatever. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we have back with us today special guest Nicholas Cage author Lindsay Gibb. Hi. Hi. So when we finished recording Sunny, we asked if you wanted to do another one, and you sort of jumped at the opportunity. We didn't have too many left, but you really wanted to do The Weatherman. Mm-hmm. So what about this movie drew you to it? Like, what did, what did you like about it when you were watching it for your research or just watching it for fun? Well, I watched this probably in 2005, maybe 2006, like whenever it came out on video. And this was like the movie that I argued about with people at work a lot, um, which sort of led to me defending him hardcore. Because people that I worked with didn't like it. This was kind of what sort of eventually led to me having a Nicolas Cage club and then uh, writing the book. I feel like it's kind of a weird movie if, like, this is... If you don't really know Nicolas Cage that well, like, I'm able to appreciate it, and I really did like this movie, and I was telling Mike last night that I think it's probably one of my five favorite movies that we've done in Cage Club that I hadn't seen before. And it's probably the darkest. Like, all, all the other ones that I like that much are sort of like It Could Happen to You and, like, Moonstruck and all these, like, rom-coms. Like, this is sort of the, the, the most bleak and dark and depressing of my new favorite Cage movies. Yeah. But it's kind of a weird movie in that it almost makes you want to hate the movie. I mean, it's just, it's a weird tone and it's sort of hard to get into, but I really dug it. Yeah, I think that was the issue with people at work and probably, well, I was reading some reviews of it just sort of leading up to this to see what the general consensus was. And there was no consensus, like (laughs) half of the critics. It, it got like 50 something. It's I think it's fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's like uh, just over 50 liked it. And then the people who didn't like it, I think the issue and definitely the issue for the people that I worked with seemed to be that he wasn't a likable character. Some of the stuff with the daughter, I think, was an issue. We'll, we'll come up to that stuff. I like this movie a lot. I had not seen it before. In the past few films, we've gotten two sort of versions of Nicolas Cage. We've got an adaptation of Magic Man and this. There's sort of his sort of indie almost I would call it indie just for lack of a better word or anything but just this he's stretching more he's doing more he's sort of you know playing more in these roles and then we have something like National Treasure where it just feels a little more just a token action hero kind of not really doing anything that great not really stretching and this comes on the end of him doing more uh, I mean going places that I don't think I've seen him go yet in Cage Club maybe it's just coming off of you know, Lord of War and National Treasure, two films that were just, you know, very aggressive, fast-paced movies. I, I really sort of fell right into this. It, right when we started, I was ready to get back to something a little smaller, a little quieter, uh, more of like a character study. And, and I thought a weatherman was perfect because it's a person you sort of, they need to be instantly likable when you see them on camera for some reason. They're just, that's part of their job. I like the contrast where we're going to see, here's a guy you're supposed to like, and he's not very likable. You know, we're not going to mm-hmm. necessarily like him to begin with. This movie is, I, I guess it sort of flew under the radar. This is a movie along with Lord of War and it's sort of fitting, and maybe it's in my head because this way, but they're back-to-back, and their DVD cases are both iconic, their movie posters are iconic, and I knew absolutely nothing about either of them. Mid-2000s cage movies, right? 
like I think, Mike, you were saying, this is kind of going back into his smaller period. It's like another new era for Cage, and it's kind of exciting to be in, into these movies that I, I've never heard of, really. Yeah, I don't. I mean, Gore Verbinski's not an indie director, and I think maybe that was also a thing that sort of confused people about this movie. I think I think that was the problem with this movie for people was that they just didn't know what it was. Like with it having sort of an indie feel, but being like a big budget movie. Mm-hmm. And having people like Michael Caine and stuff in it uh, threw people off. Yeah, it's hard to place this in a genre necessarily, you know. Uh, it's almost just a movie for Nicolas Cage fans. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know yeah. exactly, you know. Uh, how would one market this? I didn't watch the trailer or anything like that. Although I remember when this was sort of coming out and it felt like it was geared to be more of a comedy. And while I did laugh a lot and I do think this movie is very funny, I don't think it's necessarily a comedy. I mean, it is, it, it's a dark comedy and probably one of the only dark comedies I've laughed like this much at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were talking before we started recording about what other Cage Club movies this is kind of like. It's not as funny as Raising Arizona, but it's a funny, dark kind of movie. Mike, you mentioned that sort of has a little bit of flavor of Matchstick Men. But I think it's also sort of singularly itself that it's kind of unique. It's almost like the disillusioned family man is how I sort of was mm-hmm. talking or how I was thinking about it while we were watching or while I was watching it. It's like the family man that it, if he was able to go into this life and have this family, this wife and his kids, and then things just sort of start to go wrong and that he has a great career. Maybe he builds up his tire empire or gets that job in the city and things are going really well for him professionally. But it's his family that sort of he just can't do anything right. And it's almost like a darker timeline, like a, a bleak future of what would have happened, you know, six years down the line from that guy in The Family Man. Yeah, that seems pretty accurate. I also couldn't help but think of adaptation while watching this. And I don't know, like, it's probably the voiceover <laughs> that did that. <laughs> I love Nicolas Cage voiceover. Like, I just love his voice. And it r- works really well, I think, in this. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's like a cross between Charlie and Donald a little bit. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> We've had a couple pretty heavy voiceover films the last couple episodes, you know, and adaptation sort of nailed it on the mark. I just think Lord of War was a little too voiceover heavy, and, and this I feel like is the perfect blend. It just sort of accentuates what we're seeing, you know, it, it just adds information to details that aren't there. And like, I really love the way this is shot, and it's sort of just muted and basic, and there's really not all that much to look at, so the voiceover does a good job of bringing out more emotions and more feelings and, and things of that nature. This is another Cage movie where we're trapped in his head and he's just trying to figure out why his life is falling apart. <laughs> that from the outside, he's this guy with a really great job that gets paid a lot of money, doesn't have to do a lot of work, but his family life fell apart. Everybody in the public seems to hate him, and I don't know if that's necessarily because they're jealous of him. Maybe it's just reputation that he kind of gets like a little bit snappy. I don't know if he's like an angry person leading up to the movie or just becomes angry in terms of the public outrage against him while the movie's happening. He's just, he's not fulfilled and he's just, it, it seems like everything should be going right and just nothing really is going right for him. He's sort of living in the past a little bit, right? It's interesting that people came out and not liking this character. I just sort of kind of feel sorry for the guy in a lot of ways. He's got 
got this super easy job, you know, he doesn't really lead a hard adult life or like he's sort of not involved with the difficult parts of being an adult. And he's sort of oblivious to other people like his own father who's going to the doctor and he's asking or he's just, you know, talking about himself and he kind of doesn't have a clue in a lot of ways. And starting off the movie, I'm getting a strange portrait of this guy. I don't know. I'm just getting like, I need, I want more. And I'm interested to know more about what makes this weatherman tick, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, his relationships with people, he's not good at thinking about the other person in a relationship. I think he just sort of feels if things are going well for him and particularly if his professionally, if things get even better, then maybe everybody's going to be happy and his life will be perfect. But he's not really thinking about the ways that he needs to fix his relationships. I think that's a big part of what makes him an unlikable character because he, he isn't really thinking about other people in a deep kind of way. Yeah, yeah. He's Even though he's sort of aloof and a goof, like he is still very like self-centered, you know, yeah. and, like selfish. It's a combination of him not thinking about other people and also having the wrong perception. Like he thinks... Yeah that all the problems in his life can be solved by money, and he thinks that going to this new job in New York that he's eventually going to apply for and interview for and eventually get, he thinks that raising his salary from a very healthy, what, like quarter million dollars to a million dollars, his wife is going to come running back and everything's going to be fine. The way to his daughter's heart is by buying her clothes. The way to his son's heart is by buying him a $600 camera. What's nice about the movie is that they don't really make it in sort of a cliche. Like, they don't just come out and say... Like, he talks a lot about money, and I think a lot of the interactions revolve around it. Like, that seems like a kind of thing that we've seen in a bunch of movies, but I don't think it works the same way here as it does elsewhere. I think it's more original and sort of more natural here. Yeah, his relationship with his dad, I feel like, is partially maybe to blame for why he feels like if he's just more successful everything will work out because his dad has high expectations but I mean his dad does want him to be more of an adult and sort of take care of his life I don't know maybe his dad's expectations sort of lean more towards the outwardly like your life needs to look good direction and that's kind of where he's going his grandfather has like more sort of he's like in his children's lives more than he is when the movie starts to a degree like takes more interest i mean we do discover that his father's sick you know so he doesn't have a lot of time and it seems like he wants to sort of put things in 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 order i get the sense that he's just disappointed in his son like he never really amounted to much and then therefore he's like disappointed in himself because like you say like he's a an award-winning author and all this stuff and he's prestigious but yet his son is like the local weatherman you know it's like kind of embarrassing people throw food at him on the street street like what does your son yeah. do for a living people throw food at him if cage could go from like local to national just make that leap and it'll just seem like he's more important and maybe his dad will recognize him then if you know he'll have to because he'll be up on this pedestal or on a parade float one day this movie i feel and i don't know maybe it's a bigger criticism of careers on a whole every character in this movie kind of has a weird perception of like acceptable careers and what a good job is versus a bad job Like, a guy making a quarter million dollars, he's in a major metropolitan city. Like, I know that Weatherman is not necessarily... I think the problem that Michael Caine has with it, and they they talk about it throughout the movie, is that Cage is just guessing. He doesn't have a degree in this. It's partially a science, but it's also kind of guesswork. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad job. I mean, I think it's kind of a job that you should respect. You know, it's not like this is an entry-level position. He worked his way up here. And at the end of the movie, his son says he's going to be a cameraman for Monday Night Football. Like, that's, like, really, like, aiming for the middle. Like, it's just weird, like, what jobs people aspire to. 
and what jobs other people aren't okay with. It just it's, it's sort of a weird commentary there, I think. I feel like Michael Caine's issue, like you said, he's not a meteorologist. He doesn't have the training, and I think maybe Michael Caine is feeling like he didn't really dedicate himself to this. He kind of maybe just fell into being a weatherman because he is good at being charismatic on camera, which seems to be the main thing that Nicolas Cage's character is good at. Um, in his whole life. <laughs> and so, yeah, I feel like it's more the, like, dedicating yourself to something, being serious. Like, these are important things to Michael Caine. Yeah, it's sort of, like, the effort that he has to put into it, you know? Like, Michael Caine sort of tells him, when you're a grown-up, things shouldn't be easy, you know? Like, there's no value in getting something unless you work hard for it. And I guess he just sees that job as easy, and, you know, and, like, he maybe did fall into it, and he just stayed a weatherman because of how simple it was and what a good living it could be and never aspired to be much more than that. Maybe that's why Cage is going for this job in New York City. You know, he's going out of his comfort zone. He sort of is delusional. He's trying to get his family back together. And, you know, you just see how futile that is. That, to me, adds just an amount of empathy towards the character. So Lord of War starts off with Cage looking at the camera and setting up the movie. This kind of sets up the movie through voiceover. And it kind of also reminds me a little bit, again, and this is something I didn't get while I was watching the movie, but it reminds me again of The Family Man, where he's just sort of getting ready for his day. Mm And there's voice over here, and he's talking about how refreshing it is to be, like, waking up and how refreshing he is. And he's, like, walking around his apartment, gesturing to the green screen that's not there. He's doing his weatherman cues. That was refreshing. I'm refreshed. I'm refreshing. The movie gives you a lot of details, and it's not necessarily hard to follow, but they're not laying everything out for you. Like, there's little details here and there, and you sort of have to do a little bit of work to piece things together and figure out the relationships, what they do, who they are, etc. Yeah, it does a wonderful job in the opening sequence of establishing pretty much, like, his entire family. You know, as he's walking around his uh, apartment, you well, he's alone, you know, so we find out that he's living by himself. There's really not a lot of detail to sort of discern a clear personality right off the bat, but we get on the mantle pictures of kids, at least we get, yep. yeah, right? And and um, I think a picture of him with his ex-wife, but there's like kids, and then we see a man, some books, and the next scene he's with that person, so I guess, you know, I was able to discern that's his father. So yeah, it just does a really nice job setting everything up here. And it also sets up just how angry and resentful he is. It's weird. I think the big problem with this character in the movie, not in terms of writing the character, but in terms of like his inner problems, is that he's such a focal public figure, right? Like He's a focus of the public's attention, that he is this guy who basically tells all of Chicago what kind of weather there is. That he has the Spritz Nipper, because his last name is Spritzel, but he yeah. shortened it to Spritz because it's a better kind of meteorology name. We see people watching, like it's a very divisive name, we see people watching at home, and some of them love it, some of them hate it. Every couple months, someone throws something at me. A shake. A burrito once. Why? My name partly, I guess. I changed it for professional reasons. My first station manager suggested it. He said it sounded refreshing and that they wanted that quality. That may be true, but it's also annoying. I know that. What kind of name is Spritz? It's a bullshit name. It's a TV name. He's bullshit. I like him. He's handsome. He's an asshole. I don't like his face. 
Maybe Sunday night. His asshole face. He grows to hate it as the movie goes on. He has like the spritz nipper, which is the coldest day of the week. And people seem to always come up to him, and he just wants to be left alone. He's a very isolated, quiet, solitary person. It just so happens to be that he's in this career where his face is sort of synonymous with weather in Chicago. He's online at the DMV, and a guy wants to get his autograph, and he's just like, no, I'm not that guy. And the guy gets really mad at him because he knows he is the guy, sees his name on the paper, and Kate just wants to be left alone. What's up, dude? What's up? Hey, can I get your autograph? Um, I'm not who you think I am, so... You're not the weather guy? Dan Spritz? Dave Spritz. I'm not Dave Spritz, no. But I hear that a lot. You don't have to be a dick. Look, can you just... All right, I'm just waiting in line. Bro, I can read your vehicle registration form. So whatever. Can you... All right. Can you give me a break? I just wanted to wait in line. You're on TV, bro. You're on TV. You're on TV, bro. So what? You keep saying that. So you're on TV, bro. Go work in a bank or something if you don't want to be cool to people. Whatever. Just... Can you get out of my face? Can you get out of my face? Asshole. You want to say that to my face? Thought you wanted me to get out of your face. It's a weird kind of career choice, right, mm-hmm. for a guy who values like peace and, and sort of quiet and alone time so much to be so visible and so out there. It must be the hostility that he gets from people, because I threw out the movie and towards the end, he, he seems to sort of come to terms with being recognized. I feel like it's the place he is in his life. You know, he's unhappy with his relationship, you know, isn't impressing his father enough, maybe. Uh, All of that stuff put together and the fact that people throw fast food at him that sort of (laughs) makes him, you know, shun any kind of attention. What happened? I got hit with a Frosty. Why? What? Why did you get hit with a Frosty? What is a Frosty? A Frosty's a shake from Wendy's. Why would someone throw a shake at you? That happens sometimes. People throw shakes at you? Stuff. People throw stuff at me sometimes. If they don't like me or something. They don't know you. From TV. But you just read the weather. Well, I predict it. You don't have a degree in meteorology. I make suppositions, or... I. I almost got the sense that at the start he was really into it and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm a local celebrity and then time went on and it maybe it just grated on him and maybe I shouldn't have changed my name. Maybe I should have come up with a better gimmick or something, something that doesn't quite get under people's skin and it just started getting, like he's getting under his own skin. I thought this did a really good job up front of setting up he's going to have trouble with his public and he doesn't like his public and they get to see the real him. It's like, dude, you almost have like this weird responsibility to play a certain role when you have fame or television, or or at least when you're a a local celebrity to the degree that a Chicago weatherman would be, which, you know, I think would be a little more popular than any, than some other cities, you know, just because Chicago's weather just seems to be so much crazier from day to day than like some other major cities like Los Angeles or New York. I just love the way it sets up sort of how he's at war with his public and vice versa. Somewhere in the middle of the movie, we get that that dream montage of his new life in New York when he's on Hello America. 
And it's, it's one of the funniest parts of the movie, I think, because it's Bryant Gumbel talking about who this guy was, who he is now. Didn't his name used to be Spritz? Oh, yeah, well, he changed it back to Spritzel. And, like, like, it seems like every decision that he's made up to this point to get him where he is turns out to be the wrong decision. I mean, the movie, and sort of, it's right there in the log line, it's this guy whose career could not be going better, while his family life could not be going any worse. Every decision that he makes in terms of his career is getting him where he needs to be, but it's also not making him happier, and he's not able to get fulfillment from anything else in his life because his dad is sick and dying, his daughter is smoking cigarettes and going through an act of rebellion, his son is engaged in a very disgustingly creepy... yeah. pedophile situation hashtag eight millimeter his wife is about to marry this other guy like he has no one to lean on he's just so alone there's a moment in the early part of the film that really kind of shows the way that his audience as the weatherman looks at him but also kind of ends up foreshadowing the way that the audience of this film sort of were divided on it is the moment when there's like a couple watching him on tv and then the man's talking about him and saying, you know, that Spritz is a bullshit name and this guy's bullshit. And then the wife says, no, I like him. I think he's, you know, relatable or whatever. And then the man says, he's an asshole. I don't like his face, his asshole face. <laughs> <laughs> he can't please anyone, you know. It's weird. In his professional life, he's just doing his job and people hate him. And, and in his personal life, he's, he's trying to what he thinks do do the best he can and things are sort of falling apart. Like his relationship with his ex-wife has summed up perfectly when he drops off his son and they talk for a few minutes and he tries to get like playful and throws a snowball right in her face you know and it's like he's trying to do something cute and nice and and it just ends up biting him right in the ass and and that happens like several times it's like he's just prone to having like really bad days but it's also the way he reacts to those things because i feel like there's so many moments where he like has a chance to make it right or like at least improve his relationship with people and then in that moment when he throws the snowball at her and she's like what the hell and he's like you turned into it like it's her fault (laughs) (laughs) and there's moments where he doesn't reveal information that could (laughs) easily sort of diffuse a situation or something like that too yeah he has that that problem and people around him are almost honest to a fault like his father has almost no filter his ex-wife like definitely tells him what he needs to hear and and his kids at least his daughter has like this one nice sort of quiet moment of like sage wisdom sort of about the the whole camel toe thing later on and it's just weird how like he's the guy who you know he just needs to be honest maybe with himself and and who he is and accept that and then he can be honest with everyone else and and his life will sort of fall back into place i mean he's kind of his own worst enemy right i don't think he's ever going to get back together with his wife but it doesn't seem like she wants to cut him out of her life altogether he could learn this like sage advice this cage advice this little bit of wisdom from his daughter he could still be important in their lives But whether he's just not saying information like you're saying, or like you were mentioning before, he's just not saying things that could help him out, or if he's intentionally sort of sabotaging himself or his career, he's the only one holding him back from true success, right? Yeah, he's very short-sighted. Like, throughout everything, he's like, oh, once I get the Hello America job, everything will be okay. And obviously there's a lot of other interpersonal things that he needs to deal with that could make it better. And I kind of like how what he needs to do, it's not like he has a long list of things to fix, you know, 
But to him, sort of emotionally and as an adult, there's stuff that he's not comfortable dealing with. Talk to your daughter about her weight and getting new clothes. Don't be a dick around your ex-wife's new boyfriend, <laughs> right? Like, how yeah. hard is that to do? It, it, it's not a Herculean effort here, but yet he makes it out to be in his mind. But And perhaps because his life has been so easy, you know, he doesn't have a meter of difficulty in his head. He just thinks like, oh, these are adult issues. They should be hard. I'm going to have trouble dealing with this stuff. Is there anything else we should talk about before we get to the actual, like, the, the bow and arrow part? We have Cage's Abraham Lincoln, which, which oh. I don't think is necessarily... Oh. Oh. <laughs> the asides like that are so great, though. All so, the little... Yeah. Like, as a weatherman, right, both in Chicago and ultimately in New York, though we don't see anything in New York, we just sort of hear about it, Cage has to do these little promotional gigs. And he does one for something... I mean, is it for, like, a holiday? I don't remember what it's for, but he has to dress as Abraham Lincoln... And it's Cage in a beard, in a top hat, and he eventually, you know, compromises his beer wench. But, like, it's just, it's such a weird little moment where it doesn't really have anything to do, because this movie has so much voiceover, that's the most important thing. Like, we're learning about Cage, learning about his life, learning about what he's thinking, where he's going to go next. And almost, like, what's on the screen doesn't really matter. That it's just sort of visuals to be there while we're listening to him talk. And so while he's talking, we see him as Abraham Lincoln as him compromising this beer wench. Like, that's why the movie, I think, is so funny, and I think that's sort of... It, it's important that those are there, because otherwise it would just be such a depressing, dark, really bleak movie. Yeah, he's he's basically in that moment talking about how easy his life is, how, like, that promotional event or whatever led to him having sex with this lady, and, like, I guess how easy at least his professional life is. There's a number of little asides where we just get to watch something while he's sort of talking about his life, and and I think that's sort of like the best parts of this movie in terms of like whatever Gorber Rubinsky had like in mind for what was going to happen in this movie. I think sort of what made it not just another movie about some guy lamenting his life or something. It was was like little asides like that. Yeah, I agree. These asides and then fantasy sequences and sort of flashbacks that we get from time to time breaks up the momentum because the main plot and the main drive is more of a depressing, sadder beat going on. And it's great that while all this is going on, him inside his own head is still thinking, uh, you know, we, we truly follow his thoughts, right? Like they're scattered and random at moments where we're flashing to like his example of a perk where I just envisioned him in some kind of time travel comedy where he was Abe Lincoln in Bavaria, <laughs> like, in, you know, two different times. And, like, yeah. I must compromise you to save the world. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. Um, and it added that. And, and it sort of just, for me, it, it reinforced, I kept sort of getting less that he's a jerk and more that he's just clueless or doesn't really know any better. Not that he shouldn't know any better, but just that, like, he just doesn't quite get it. I mean, it's almost like he can do no wrong professionally and he can do no right at home. That he goes with his daughter and like even like little things like little nice father-daughter bonding moments where they're gonna have a three-legged sack race on ice skates what happens but she trips and falls and tears her acl and mcl these little moments that like they should be these relationship builders they should be these great memories should be a great moment with his daughter just turns out like it's not his fault it's just like bad things happen to him basically he goes to work and not without even having to try beautiful girls are throwing themselves at him again you know couldn't be more different but like he's trying so hard i think to do things right at home and nothing's going but at work like he, he doesn't even have to try he's like heaped with all like everything he could ever ask for 
Yeah, it's got to be confusing, right? <laughs> like, I know I'd be startled if, like, I got home from work and people weren't doing things for free for me. I don't know exactly. <laughs> like, he seems to be the kind of guy that we get, like, that flashback with why he thinks his li- his wife left him, and he sort of boils it all down to forgetting the tartar sauce, you know? And it's just like, no. Like you say, like, he kind of can't see the bigger picture. Oh, one thing I noticed, and this is not, this is not necessarily important to the story at all, they use the word dildo a lot in this movie <laughs> As an insult, and I just watched the other day, I watched on Halloween, Murder Party, which is by the guy who did Blue Ruin and Green Room. Mm-hmm. Everybody in that movie uses the word dildo all the time. Dave, what? Step back. Step back? Step back. What are you talking about, Russ? Russ. Step back right now. Fuck you right now. Fuck you, Spritz. Fuck you, fat asshole. Dildo. David. What are you doing? I'm talking to my wife. I'm talking to Noreen and this clown whose business this isn't. You call me a dildo. It is my business, Spritz. You are a dildo, pork fuck, porker. I mean, this would have been when I was in high school, so I guess it would have been a big word that people were using. But, like, did a lot of movies in the mid-2000s just use <laughs> dildo all the time? Like, it's a word that nobody says anymore. More than once. Like, I think two or three times uses that word. Yeah. I don't remember it being a big word. <laughs> it didn't make it north of the border? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't recall it being like a big catchphrase during <laughs> the new millennium. But I do appreciate the use of profanity in this film. Oh, yeah. You know, it feels so honest. Like, it accentuates, like, his childlike side, right? Like, we keep talking about how his life is so easy, and his dad says, you know, an adult life shouldn't be so easy. You should have to suffer. You should have to work hard. And he's sort of showing his, you know, he's just a big kid when he sees this other guy with his ex-wife, you know? And it just goes back to playground mode. (laughs) He regresses in that instant. And, and, And even his dad, like, his dad is just so blatant with everything like just says what's on his mind and he's talking about his how his granddaughter is overweight and her clothes are too tight and the kids call her camel toe and he just repeats like camel toe camel toe and he's like you know it's just so matter of fact for him and i just love how the language in this film feels so realistic i do not appreciate michael Caine cursing or saying anything <laughs> like i wrote down that i do never i never want to hear michael Caine say the word camel toe again <laughs> to me camel toe, to me he's, camel toe. he's he's alfred he's this upstanding British gentleman. Like, I don't want to hear him swear. I don't want anything to come out of his mouth. I want him to be prim and proper at all times. And he's almost the most profane out of anybody. Like I think you said earlier, Mike, he just sort of says whatever's on his mind of what's on his mind a lot of the time. It's just how bad Cage is messing things up. He's often, throughout the movie, just repeating whatever he's just seen Nicolas Cage do and, like, asking him, why did you just do that? Like, what? what's with all this fucking? Like, when he says fuck all the time and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I love the relationship between the two of them and how straightforward Michael Caine is and how confused he is by his son. Like, he just doesn't understand him. And he just constantly asks him, like, why? Why are you doing this? Yeah, and I think every time they run into each other, or most of the time, he has just been hit with something. Right? So, like, he's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I was hit with a Frosty. And he's like, what's a Frosty? Why would someone hit you with something? And the next time, he's like, oh, someone threw pop at me. And he's like, what the? He's like, what's a big gulp? What is all this? Like, he's just yeah. so perplexed by this guy's job, byproducts of his job. A lot of this movie is Chicago throw food at Cage for not being happy with him as a weatherman. And I read that the McDonald's logo is on screen nine times. I usually hate 
product placement in movies. I know I sense some in this movie, but I think it's just so funny to see at one point, right, he goes through for like a minute in slow motion, they show all the food that has been thrown at him. I think it's funnier, like instead of just saying like chicken nuggets, like someone threw McNuggets. And it's like these little tiny details, right? A Frosty or a Big Gulp. Like people aren't just throwing a soda, they're throwing something that like exists in the real world and makes this movie, at least to me, feel more real. Yeah, yeah, it's totally fair product placement. I'm assuming that that was part of the reason that they did it, but it totally works. Yeah, I think he even lives next to a McDonald's, and he goes to an Arby's, and and later on, he goes into how he feels like he's fast food, you know, he's just easily consumable, and you could just change the channels or, like, toss them away if you needed to, you know, don't even finish with them kind of thing, and and even down to using SpongeBob SquarePants uh, in the parade float, like, he works in fast food, right? He's a short order cook, so, you know, I don't think, like, they just accepted money from these people, they actually probably went out and sought them out specifically <laughs> for this film for certain reasons. I kind of forgot about that fast food, how Cage is fast food speech, and that's like the most depressing thing. Like to realize that nothing you do has any substance, that's just like heartbreaking. The first time I was struck with something, a chicken breast from Kenny Rogers, I was standing next to a garbage pail. I thought it might have been an accident that they were throwing it out. The second time, It hit me square on the chin. A soft taco. Then, pop. A falafel. McNuggets. Always fast food. Fast food. Shit people would rather throw out than finish. It's easy. It tastes alright, but it doesn't really provide you any nourishment. I'm fast food. Like, I'm sure people every morning look forward to seeing him on the news, seeing him do his weather, looking forward to the spritz nipper, and then as soon as it's over, they're like, no, whatever, like, I'm just on to the next thing. And they don't think about him or what he does until they either see him in real life or he says it's supposed to be 65 degrees out and it's snowing. He's something that everybody can just throw away, and that's just so depressing to think about. But it's true. I mean, what he does is very, like, quickly consumable and then... It doesn't matter anymore because it's like, he tells you it's going to rain. It either rains or it doesn't. He has to tell you the next thing because it's it's over. That day is over. It's sort of this moment of epiphany he has and comes to terms almost, or at least he knows what he needs to come to terms with. I mean, we're getting ahead a little bit, but he, you know, he does the audition for the New York show and that's hanging in the air. Is he going to take that job or not? Um, there's, there's issues with his son and his son's drug counselor. And it's right around this time where he realizes his sort of place in the world he's standing up and becoming a man and taking charge of his personal life and helping his son, you know, and actually getting out there and physically, you know, taking care of things for them as well. And, and it's just it's just a very interesting sort of moment for the character where you can just sense that there's something different going on now in him. He actively tries to make efforts to be a better person, right? That he tries to be involved in this kid's life. He goes to couples therapy with his wife. Are they, are they divorced or are they separated do you ever get a clear example of that i don't think so i assumed they were separated but she later says i'm marrying so-and-so and and there's no real discussion of like we have to get divorced first or anything like that yeah i thought she was married to the new guy already uh russ right i thought they were married and then later just like no but they still go to that couple therapies class and that that leads to one of my favorite revelations about this character and something that just (laughs) added something that i would totally believe you know in in a in a depth that 
that I was so grateful for. You know, his dad is a very successful author. He won the Pulitzer for fiction. And so he's written a novel himself. And just to hear what we hear about this novel, just the tiny details, like I wish they just did some kind of cross promotion where they actually wrote this book and released it (laughs) alongside the weatherman in like a companion piece. The novel is called Breaking Point, and it's about a guy like smuggling plutonium around. We don't really know. We know it's not sci-fi, but there's. We a know it's not sci-fi, but it reads as sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the guys is a scientist or something like. That. And it's... it seems to be like some kind of noir type Tom Clancy thriller that I just. Oh man, I wish we had one of those flashes to a scene from his book acted out with the characters from the movie at some point. That also is depressing because he eventually, toward the end of the movie, gives up and deletes the copy from his computer that he was going to work on and he wanted to get it published. I think it was just something to do that he wanted to be more like his dad, and he deletes it, and then Michael Caine in the car says, I read your book, and Cage is like, oh boy, like you weren't supposed to read that. And Michael Caine's like, I'm not sure why you're doing this. I spent my whole entire life writing, and I got better and better. Like, like It's kind of sad that he, he doesn't know why Cage is doing it, but it could also maybe be looked at Caine's kind of giving him a little bit of reassurance. I'm only as good as I am as a writer because I spent my entire life doing it. You can't expect your first novel to just be a Pulitzer Prize-winning piece of fiction, right? Like, it's kind of breaking Cage down at the same time it's building him up. You're not great at this, but it's okay. Like, you, you, if you want to, like, stick with it. It feels like a moment of release to me, like, where the father's like, you don't have to be me, you know? The book almost represented something Cage thought he needed to do that he never really wanted to do. Almost like how his daughter said she'd like to try archery but didn't have her heart in it but just kind of wanted to please her father we haven't really talked about it yet but we should probably bring it up nick cage's character takes to archery extremely well right it just almost becomes like this second nature form of therapy for him in a way and that's his book right there right like that's how i felt about it it's like something that he found that he becomes good at that he likes and he grows and matures in naturally something that also something like a being a weatherman right like it's something he's good at he became a natural at it like he's you know the hard parts aren't as hard for him anymore and all this stuff so to me that's almost how like what the book represented at first it was like this forcing something out of you to express yourself he eventually found something naturally that he could enjoy and express himself with yeah he buys lessons for his daughter because he wanted to do something with his daughter they wanted to get her more involved and he said what do you want to do and she said archery And so they went out and they bought like a bow and arrow or like they got five lessons and she went once and then quit. And he goes out and he does it. And it's like we we eventually find out that she never really wanted to do archery. She wanted to hunt. And he's like, that's not the thing. Like, this is sort of, you know, he is such a solitary person. And this is basically just him and what he's aiming at. That this is exactly the kind of thing, I guess, sort of like writing. There is a good metaphor. I think you're right, Mike, that between archery and the book, they're both these things that you do by yourself and one cage just wasn't able to get better at. And this one, it's cool that we see him grow throughout the movie and get better at archery. That's sort of what helps him break out of his funk a little bit. And there's just a lot of great imagery that comes along throughout the rest of the film, such as the targets, you know, like he has this goal about fixing his his life and getting the new job and aiming at the target is a good sort of metaphor for that as well. And, you know, throughout the film, he gets closer and closer to the bullseye until the end where he hits the target and he's got his, his new life that he's happy with. And also the fact that he's sort of a target as well, you know, <laughs> like with the, all the things people throw at him and at the street. 
tree. And so there's a lot of interesting meaning going on aside from just this tranquil imagery of archery. This is all pre-Katniss too. So I was like, <laughs> way to get ahead of the game, Gore Vavinsky. I like that the script is written out in the way that as he's getting good at archery, his career, like things in other places of his life, in other aspects of his life, seem to get better. That it's not too long after he takes up archery that Hello America calls. This job, this national weatherman job that we talked about earlier, they want him to come to New York and audition. That it's like he just needed to find one thing in his life that he could be good at, that he had control over, that didn't just sort of come naturally to him, that he had to work at and improve upon. And once he's bettering himself as a person, other pieces in his life are sort of starting to fall into place. That he's able to spend a little bit of time, like he's going to go to New York and go for this job, and that also affords him the opportunity to spend time with his daughter. Everything is kind of getting better for him. Things aren't necessarily great yet, but everything is getting better all sort of in a linear progression. With his daughter, like, going to New York with him and with the sort of relationship that he has with his son, particularly where he says, like, oh, you know, I'm not playing favorites when he says that he had just taken his daughter out for, um, like, do archery and stuff. And he says to his son, I'm not playing favorites. I just think I need to spend some time with her. And the son's like, yeah, it's cool, whatever. And, like, I just feel like there's nothing that really happens here that seems like he has a bad relationship with his kid. They have sort of normal kid problems. They're going through stages of life where, you know, maybe they're rebelling slightly, but they're really, like, pretty open with him. His daughter's willing to go to New York and hang out with him and her grandfather. Like, they're not bad kids. Like, he doesn't have a lot of, like, really serious problems that he's trying to dig through. He's just trying to sort of level out his life. It's kind of like first world problems a little bit, right? That he has, like, things are bad, but they could be so much worse. That really the only bad thing his daughter does is that instead of spending the money Cage gives her on a note book she buys cigarettes and she's like this 12 year old girl who looks 12 and the the cashier at the convenience store has no problem giving her cigarettes one thing i want to get from your perspective Lindsay, is when they go to new york they go to some really fancy clothing store cage buys her all the clothing like everything she wants (laughs) i would like your perspective on her outfits because Mm -hmm. they are weird they are weird (laughs) maybe it's just you know mid-2000s fashion but she kind of looks like a little businesswoman when she's like it just it's a very weird look and i was hoping to get your perspective i'm glad that we have a feminine perspective on this her outfits like whatever she's trying on and cage is so into it he's like oh you look great like these are amazing yeah, I don't know if they're, like, rich ladies clothing store or something. Like, she does look like a little professional. Also, there's, like, a weird hat that she puts on right away that's sort of like a blossom hat or something, which is totally <laughs> not, like, that is not the time for the blossom hat. But the scene is great. Like, whether the clothes are weird, I, I think the, obviously, the point of it is that she gets called camel toe, so he gets her to buy strictly dresses. There's, like, a scene that's sort of like a montage of her, like, prancing around in the outfits, and then he's prancing around too and his (laughs) prance is amazing (laughs) so yeah it's just a kind of a great scene I took that as like everything is okay between them from now on scene you know (laughs) like all of their problems are about to be resolved here yeah they do this fashion show and I love how he's doing his um, his weather moves sort of and then she comes out of the dressing room sort of like voguing and everything (laughs) it was cool I don't know I just like Cage just plays really well off children too and I just think the girl in this especially she did like a remarkable job in this movie and her and Cage made like a really good little like 
duo, I thought. They had this beautiful moment in the in Central Park where, you know, he's like, do you get called names? Do you get called camel toe? And, and she's like, yeah. And she's like, you know, they call me that because camel toes are like super tough and have to walk on hot rocks and across the desert. And she's like, I'm tough, like a camel toe. And, and like, it's just so like adorable, you know? Like, <laughs> you, you know, that's what he's talking. He's like, she shouldn't have to deal with this kind of stuff. She never did anything to anyone. She's innocent. And it's like one of those reminders, like she is protected from that kind of stuff. Like she is innocent in a lot of ways and she gets to have that and he you know and he gets to know that and and from there on they can move forward together yeah he makes some good relationship decisions in that camel toe scene where he says like yeah that is why people say that you're right when he's uh, with her and she's trying on the clothes and he's just like you look great and he's like just really encouraging and you can see how like that perked her up because generally she's kind of just going around in a funk all the time he was a good dad and he made some actually good decisions at that point. As good and as positive as his relationship is with his daughter, it's equal in the opposite direction between his son and his drug counselor. His son is Nicholas Holt, who's the star of Warm Bodies, who more importantly and more recently was Nux in Mad Max Fury Road. yeah. I was going to say Beast, but yeah, Dux is a much better example. He's going to Valhalla with this guy, I guess. I don't know. I almost don't want to talk about it because it's so... Like, this feels like it's a completely different movie. It's so creepy. Are you thinking like Steve Buscemi from Con Air scene with the little girl type creepy stuff? But like, this is worse. Yeah. Like, this this to me feels so much worse. Because that's like a big action movie where everything's kind of okay. That there's a sheen on it, and like, these are terrible people. But we're not going to see him, I don't think, do something to that girl. And we also, I mean, we talked about on that episode whether that girl actually existed or not. (laughs) Here we have a very real example of this guy in power, this counselor. From the very beginning, you know that he is into this kid, this like 15, 16-year-old kid. Just him inviting him over for dinner, getting him to take his shirt off so he can take pictures of him. It's just icky. Yeah, it's the darkest part of the movie, for sure. It's interesting that you picked this out as the darkest part. Like, when I was arguing with, happened to be two women at my work about this movie, and they were like, ah, this movie was terrible. And I was outraged. Like, how? How did you pick this as terrible? It's so great. They really picked out the camel toe part of the story as, like, they just were grossed out by that. I guess maybe about Nicolas Cage and Michael Caine talking about camel toe? I don't I don't really know what part of it disturbed them. But, yeah, uh, definitely the darkest part is the son's story i even feel like you know the camel toe scene goes on to a degree of absurdity right where it's just like they're saying it so much that it just isn't it's impossible not to be funny at that point point. and this is just full-on like straight out of i like i said hashtag eight millimeter because this is like a deleted scene from there or something like i don't know if it went too far in the wrong direction or what but i understand what it's going for you know i think we're supposed to get the sense that his son mike is looking for a father figure right he's he's got this sort of guy russ at home who's kind of an interloper like he's come in and taken over the dad role and then his dad who's sort of absent most of the time you know you can catch him on tv every once in a while while i appreciate what they were going for i think they went a little too far because i I did audibly go ill at one point (laughs) that sort of storyline ends as cage is in new york he gets a call that his son was arrested right or he's in this was sort of it was a little bit hazy and i mean there's it's a little bit of a rashomon situation i guess apparently like they were driving it was the son and the counselor were driving the son said which we probably know is the actual truth the counselor tried to go down on him the counselor said 
he tried to steal his wallet. Whatever happened, they got into a car accident. The kid got arrested. It seemed like arrested was a little bit too extreme for what happened. Maybe I'm, did I miss something? I think it was just stealing his wallet that is the reason he got arrested. And he threw a brick through the window. Of his oh, car. that's it. Yes. Yeah, so I think it was just for that kind of stuff. That's right, because Michael Caine says something about chucking a brick and that he tried to <laughs> yeah, suck, suck him off. Sucking and chucking. Yeah, and yeah. he said, what's all this sucking and chucking and jacking off? It's very weird. And so that's all happening back in Chicago while Cage is in New York. And he has, for all intents and purposes, a terrific audition for Hello America. Then he comes home, and I think because he feels so good about himself he comes home and he gets like offended like he wants to move back with his wife that you know this like we were talking about earlier this money's going to make everything right and he comes back and russ is there and russ is sort of the face of everything he hates and he slaps russ with his gloves <laughs> if you want your father to think you're not a silly fuck don't slap a guy across the face with a glove because if you do that that's what he will think unless you're a nobleman or something in the 19th century which I'm not. And it's funny that like this is sort of the way that Cage breaks. I mean, he's going to break a little bit more later. The first thing, the first way he acts out is just by taking his gloves off and slapping Russ in the face. Yeah, definitely got like a dual challenge here. I was thinking yeah. Barry Lyndon. Like, uh, I was hoping for them to go in the backyard and pull out some swords. Different movie, though. Again, I get the sense of every time something starts going right, something wrong happens, you know? And he's got like, he can't control himself still. Like, he's he's not yet at the point where he's not in control of his bow, right? The bow of his life or something, if you want to go in that direction. He just doesn't have the control yet that he needs to sort of navigate the rest of these situations. And yeah, and he even knows it too. Like early on, how he could have sort of, when he hit his wife with the um, snowball, how he could have not blamed her for getting hit with the snowball. Like at least now he's blaming himself for, as he says, being a silly fuck. He's like, you want to know how not to like have your father think you're a silly fuck? Like then don't slap someone in the face with a glove, you know, because <laughs> you're not going to have a duel. Yeah, he still like has these outbursts, but at least we're getting the sense that he knows what's wrong. Like he knows what he's doing is stupid and that he's got to change. Talking about Michael Caine, talking about trying to impress the father, they have what I've only seen in one other movie, I think, which is The Fault in Our Stars. They have a living funeral. This is depressing for a lot of reasons. First of all, I guess it's supposed to be like a happy moment, maybe. Pretending that a guy is dead while he's still alive is weird. Cage trying to, in the middle of giving his speech, the power goes out and he's unable to finish his speech. And so it's this moment where he can finally kind of connect with his dad, where it seems like they're close. Even here, he's not able to do it. And it's sort of the universe, again, not letting him have a fulfilling, happy home life. Yeah, and this is where he finds out that he got the job, and he thinks that, like, <laughs> everything's going to be great. And he says to his ex-wife, he's like, I want you back. Like, let's get married. Let's try it again. You know, I got the means. Let's start over in New York. She's going to marry Russ. But it's just like, talk about getting stabbed in the front and the back. He, you know, not only does he realize he's never going to get his wife back at this moment, but then the, the only thing that they'll remember from the speech about his dad is he reminds me of the Bob Seger song, Like a Rock. And then the power goes out and it's just like man what i kind of like about that it works in terms of the story no doubt but what i like about it in terms of cage's life is that instead of sharing this moment with everyone who knows how it's going to go over he instead gets to share it one-on-one with kane and i think that's a really touching little tender moment michael kane just in his car waiting outside cage's apartment cage comes in the car and he starts playing the song he's just like i don't get it like what does this mean and it's just like this one-on-one little moment that it's kind of lemons into lemonade, that he had this opportunity to connect with his father in front of his whole family, 
but instead he gets a way that's almost a little bit more meaningful. That's an extremely touching scene, you know. It, his father has come to terms with his son and, and has learned to accept him, right? He, he tells him, you're doing a good job. You're a great weatherman. Well, he doesn't say great, but he's like, you know, you're going to make a living better than I ever did. You're an American success story. You should be happy. I'm proud of you. Like, all these things, all of this acceptance that I didn't even think the Michael Caine character was capable of admitting maybe we've been seeing him through the eyes of Nick Cage this whole time and he's a lot softer than he's been coming across and it's just he's been intimidated by his father his whole life but he's finally getting like he needed before his father died his dad accepts him you know and is proud of him and is is happy for him and you also get the sense that that Michael Caine definitely understands sacrifice he tells his son basically this world is shit and you have to chuck things from it you know you had to chuck your book and that kind of stuff and like you let go and that's what's hard you know those you understand now why things are hard and what it means and and you know and how to be an adult i think it was just like a very lovely scene and it's very claustrophobic in the car so they need to be close and it's just it's just all played very well and this kind of empowers him it sort of does two things almost it kind of puts him into a little bit of a depression it's like before the the advice can really sink in he kind of has to reflect on it and so there's this long stretch of the movie where he's just sort of sitting there quietly and not calling Hello America back, and it's really the one thing that's going to make his life better, and he's just not doing it. You're, you're hoping, you're hoping, you're hoping he does. Eventually he does, but there's a while where you're not sure if he's going to or not. And he goes to his son's counselor's house and just beats him up. And I thought we were going to have another body to add to the body count, Mike, but he like really puts a licking on this guy. He's just like, never come near my son again. Yeah, I, I'm not sure where this happens chronologically. I think this happens before he sits with his dad in the car because his dad sees the bloody knuckles and, and Cage is sort of going, I can't knuckle down, I can't knuckle down. And, and it's maybe the one moment where the film gets a little too on the nose where <laughs> literally his knuckles are ripped apart and stuff, but nonetheless, extremely powerful. And, uh, you know, as as he's going off, you're not sure what he's doing. He, he starts shadow boxing in an empty parking lot, going through his head, like all the stuff, like why do people throw pies? Who gets pies thrown at him? And right as he comes to the realization that clowns get pies thrown at him, he confronts the counselor and starts just beating the holy crap out of him. And then just when he leaves, that goes right back into his train of thought about the whole disposable fast food comparison to him and everything. But boy, is it just like explosive and scary <laughs> and scary, right he comes like alive at that moment like we never have seen his character like that before and it's just like this release he was a time bomb almost the whole time and and it's a good thing that he exploded in the right direction also sort of inklings of delusions of grandeur here like in this in the scene where he's thinking about like who gets chicken nuggets or whatever thrown at them oh, because yeah, he compares yeah. himself to harriet tubman and thomas jefferson <laughs> and he's like they get respect and don't get a pie thrown at them and it's like you're gone <laughs> I bet you a million dollars Harriet Tubman never got Chicken McNuggets <laughs> thrown at her. <laughs> That's what I love about the movie making in terms of this, is that him fighting the counselor interrupts this voiceover about his delusions of grandeur, mm-hmm. and so we sort of hear half of it, then we cut to him just beating the guy up, and then he walks away, and as he's walking away, he just starts thinking about it again. The other thing that gets to people, that leads to pies, I guess, are these catchphrases we're required to use to single the program out. <laughs> It gets under people's skin. Spritz nipper. But the whole thing about all of it, all the getting hit with stuff, the whole thing is who gets hit with a fucking pie anyway? Did anyone ever throw a pie at Thomas Jefferson or Buzz Aldrin? I doubt it. 
But this is like the ninth time I got clowns get hit with pies. Just a kid. Dang! He looks grown, but he's just a kid. You fucking asshole. I mean, I'll bet no one ever threw a pie at, like, Harriet Tubman, the founder of the Underground Railroad. I'll bet you a million fucking dollars. This is sort of him bordering on psychopath, almost. You see, it's like a funny thing, and then you see, like, a horrific thing, and then it just instantly flips switches back to funny. It's a way that we can like process and stomach and handle this obs- insane amount of violence, right? That we're able to be bookended by this just nonsensical, of course Harry Tubman never had nuggets thrown at her. It's great. I love it. Well, there's also the tartar sauce scene where he's like, you know, mm-hmm. flashing back to why him and his wife broke up, or at least a part of why. And it's just clear that his train of thought just goes all over the place. Like the fact that he can't remember to pick up tartar sauce because he's going tartar sauce Tartar, tartar sauce, and then he's like, I wish I had two dicks. Like, out of nowhere. It's just like, <laughs> these really random thoughts that were great. Tartar sauce, tartar sauce, tartar sauce. Tartar sauce, tartar sauce, tartar sauce, tartar sauce. Man, I'd like to put my face in there. Right in there. Tartar sauce. My hips are cold. Tartar sauce. That's when you know it's cold. I like eating pussy. Tartar sauce. A lot of guys don't. Well, maybe they do. Maybe that's just black guys. Tartar sauce. What happened to the guy who was trying to go around the world in a balloon? Did he make it? I should put some espionage or stolen plutonium in my novel. Tartar sauce. Spice it up. Neil Young. Fuck, it's cold. Neil Young. What, why am I thinking about Neil Young? Neil Diamond. Neil. There's not a lot of famous Neils. Is this Wednesday? I wish I had two dicks. I thought the whole family was going to lose Spanish together this year. That never really happened. I haven't had a Spanish omelet in a long time. There we go. Anything else? No. Yeah, he's he's kind of like a scatterbrain, and I like how they got that across in this scene, and 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 it definitely helped to blend a bit of the absurd with the reality there because of how dark that subject matter is you know basically like this is the guy who tried to rape my son you know like that Mm -hmm. is heavy man and so like we needed a little bit of the of the laugh to go along with it just so that it wasn't so heavy and then michael Caine dies talking about not being heavy like (laughs) i mean he's already sort of been dead in the movie that he already had his funeral we've sort of treated him as dead it's kind of weird but like it's it sort of puts a little bow on things and kind of wraps up his time in Chicago, that this is sort of the motivation he needs between that speech that he has with his dad in the car and between Michael Caine actually dying, this is all he needs that he accepts the Hello America job and sort of gets on with the next phase of his life. Yeah, during the funeral or, like, the scene in the cemetery, I was thinking, like, yeah, this is his the end of his time in Chicago. Him taking care of his dad and, like, not having to take care of his dad anymore sort of, like, sets him free a bit. 
it felt very conclusive, like the end of a chapter in his life. And that's what I kind of like a lot about this. It felt like almost a fictional biopic in a lot of ways, like the story about a guy who didn't really exist, told in the style of someone who might have, right? And I think that that's what might have turned uh, me off of Lord of War a bit, is how it tried to tell too much. Like, I'm just glad we didn't learn every single thing about him and his dad, like from his childhood all the way up to present day. We just sort of come in in a very important moment moment in this character's life, a turning point where the last few months before his father dies and, and how he learns to deal with that grief and change his life and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it just, it feels like a good ending. And he finally accepts who he is, right? And what I love about this scene, and Mike, you're going to appreciate it, it's over mm-hmm. an instrumental Beastie Boys song. Oh, yeah, right. they played it a little earlier as well. I missed it earlier, but I just, like, that's probably on the in sound from way out, right? The music in this film is very interesting. It sort of goes between this ticking sort of like a clock thing and that's where I kind of got like this time bomb vision of the guy like at any moment he might just pop and then it has like this reggae type music that you might almost expect to hear on a film that takes place in the Caribbean instead or like in a warmer climate so it's very interesting contrast between the music and then at other times just the way the music really drives the internal emotion and Gore Verbinski plays guitar on the score as well so Gore Verbinski does play guitar on some of Hans Zimmer's soundtrack. And one other thing that Gore Verbinski does is that apparently every time Cage has food thrown at him, it's Gore Verbinski doing it. Oh so my gosh. That's, that's kind of amazing. That's amazing. I made a note that I love the thought of someone throwing chicken nuggets at him over and over to get the take. I want some behind-the-scenes footage of that. It's so good. I like how it concludes that he did indeed take the job in New York City. You know, he's recognized when he's doing his archery, and and he's more than happy to give an autograph this time, right? His character has completely come around. He's walking down the street in New York City carrying a crossbow, so maybe that's why people aren't throwing food at him anymore. (laughs) That was a a really cute touch, that he's sort of like the crossbow weatherman now. And, And I also really like the shot of the kitchen where his family is, you know, getting ready for school and everything, and they all get to see him, you know, on TV every day and everyone looks like really functional and happy now so yeah yeah, really nice that this got a happy ending i like that it was a happy ending but it wasn't like everything is solved and everything was solved to his satisfaction because obviously he wanted to get back together with his wife and that just was never gonna happen so it was good that there was like at least some elements of like he couldn't fix everything but He's sort of come to terms with what he is able to do in his life. Yeah, he has that moment at the end where he talks about what the forecast is. And he's like, come on, like, someone else is with my ex-wife. <laughs> you know, like, certain things in my life aren't awesome, but it's, yeah. you know, it's going good. And he's like, I accept where I am, behind the firefighters, but in front of the SpongeBob balloon. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm I'm okay with my place in life. Finally, at the end of the movie, he accepts who he is, and that is the weatherman. That it's not a bad thing to be. It's it's not something worth fighting that's just who he is and he's okay with it I remember once imagining what my life would be like what I'd be like I pictured having all these qualities strong positive qualities that people could pick up on from across the room but as time passed few ever became any qualities I actually had And all the possibilities I faced, and the sorts of people I could be, all of them got reduced every year to fewer and fewer 
until finally they got reduced to one. To who I am. And that's who I am. The Weatherman. So apparently they wanted to shoot this movie in Canada to save money. Nicolas Cage and Gore Verbinski said that there's no way we're shooting in Canada, we have to shoot it in Chicago. So they fought to have it shot in Chicago, and it actually was. And even though they shot in February, it was apparently unseasonably warm, and there was no snow. So all the snow that you see in the movie, the production designers had to make on set. It's, it's kind of funny that they wanted to shoot for authenticity, and then had to make this whole thing sort of fake to fit the vision that they had for the movie. Now, in terms of cage connections, there's two that I saw in the movie. They're very closely related in this movie. Russ, the guy who's going to marry Cage's ex-wife or current wife or whatever, is Michael Rispoli, who is in Snake Eyes. I don't remember what he played in Snake Eyes. And he'll also come back in Kick-Ass. But the other Cage connection is that Cage's wife, the woman who's about to marry Russ, is Hope Davis who was in Kiss of Death. But I also thought that her look, like the actress, she looked like a cross between Taya Leone and Diane Kruger, who were previous Cage Girls. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to coin that now, riffing off of Bond Girl. We have our Cage Girls. I hope that's okay. We'll see if it flies. However, <laughs> yeah, it just struck me as odd as, like, she looks just like Diane Kruger and just like Taya Leone, and, you know, we saw them very recently. <laughs> and so I don't know if it's um, something that, if that a preference of Cage, blonde co-stars? I don't understand but her role was good in this you know what i'm saying like we've had trouble with writers writing good roles for women they definitely dropped the ball in national treasure a little bit but uh, i feel like they picked it up here with this one you know she definitely stands toe-to-toe with this guy and you know isn't afraid to get in his face and yell at him and you know they they wrote her like a real woman and definitely enjoyed that absolutely and no offense to her i don't think she's as pretty as tay leone or diane kruger but hey (laughs) to each his own um i like her Dean. She's fine. I like her. I just have a big time crush on Diane Kruger. Ah, uh, yeah, it's the accent. Oh, and and Michael Caine <laughs> doing the uh, Chicago accent in this. I don't know if you caught that, but yeah, he was very. It seemed like he was having a very hard time suppressing his British Cockney. Um, <laughs> damn, if I don't give him a round of applause for trying, because I've never heard him try to do an American accent ever. And you know, we usually we haven't had an accent in a Cage movie lately, or we haven't had someone trying not to do their normal accent. Accent and yeah, I just thought that was interesting. I think Michael Caine sounded convincingly, at least American, with like a bit of a like proper kind of you know <laughs> accent. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, he sounded a little too sort of 1940s yeah. um, Chicago as opposed to 2006 Chicago, but I definitely appreciated him trying it. He would have fit better in the Cotton Club, maybe, <laughs> if if the Cotton Club was in in Chicago instead of New York. <laughs> there weren't many cage connections in terms of themes. There's no beach here. There's no red sports cars. There's no shirtless cage. There's nothing really... This is sort of like a singular, standalone kind of movie. When the critics, particularly the ones who didn't like the movie, seem to be like, here's Nicolas Cage being like a down-and-out guy or like, you know, a depressed guy. Or yeah, and it's weird that the critics weren't into this performance because it seems like they tend to have trouble with his bigger performances, shall yeah. I say? Like, you know, when he stretches or tries to really do something new. This feels to me something more of like a critic pleaser. Like, it's much quieter, smaller, and something like they would like more. So yeah, that, that comes to as a shock for me. I feel like any time a critic wants to criticize Nicolas Cage, they'll just say here he is doing something he's done before and it's like, you're talking about like four different types of things that oh, he's done this before, you know? and He can't win. 
It's, yeah. <laughs> it's like that one time you've seen him in Leaving Las Vegas, and this isn't as good as that, so it's not worth seeing. Right. I think that sort of like what Lindsay was talking about at the top, that just people don't necessarily know how to understand or approach this movie. Yeah. That I can see, you're right, Cage is never going to win. Well, it is such a strange character study of like a weatherman. I don't know, part of me, it reminded me of that documentary about the people who dress up like superheroes in California, and people take photographs with them, and then they go home and you see their sad and pathetic lives lives when they take off the costumes and things like that. I like that it was a movie about a guy that's having a difficult life and then they hang it on the weatherman stuff. It gave it like a lot more color and, and a lot more dynamic as opposed to if he was maybe just a guy in an office. You know what I'm saying? I think like his profession added a lot to his normal like it just gave like a big contrast to this guy's normal life. Like it made the normal seem super normal because his job is so strange. I guess his job is just so unusual. So thank you, Lindsay Gibb, for joining us once again. I think you will be back if I remember right. You're going to come back for at least one more movie. Yeah. As a reminder, I think we mentioned on a couple podcasts since she's been on, but she wrote the book National Treasure Nicholas Cage. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it in bookstores. You can get it wherever. It's a cute little purple book, and it's really well written and researched, and I love it. So thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. This was another great movie. I think you're, you're sort of two for two in terms of enjoyable movies, so let's keep the streak going. <laughs> yeah. For all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for movies, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Everything you want to do, Cage Club, over at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Lindsay Gibb, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club.